America. Welcome to your Leo Nation. I am the chief, Mark Garrett, with my sidekicks, Vince and Anthony in the background. And as I say, on a pretty regular occasion, they each have a face for audio podcasting and radio. So, um, but you know what? Actually, we did pop you one one time, didn't we, Anthony? And uh, I guess people can make their own uh, judgments about my statement. So, <laughs> anyway... Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we are living in some some rough times all around, all around. And we, uh, of course, recently experienced the horrific, horrific shooting in Lewiston, Maine, uh, just an act of pure evil. Um, and I'm not I'm not here to get into the details of that incident, but. It's it's ironic because a few days before that that shooting occurred, before that monster perpetrated um, mass evil, is what it is. A good friend of mine, and he is a good friend of mine. He's a dear friend, and we see eye to eye on most things. But he actually sent me an email in reference to a previous podcast where I had spoken, I think, pretty briefly about um, the Bill of Rights. I think I touched on the Second Amendment specifically, and I talked about God-given rights. And he 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 sent an email to me talking about you know what's God-given, what does that mean, where does that come from, Um, and also talking about uh, talking about how foolish it is that people are able to own weapons like the AR-15 and other quote-unquote assault rifles. And we went back and forth for a few days. I was talking to Anthony and Vince before we, we went on air here. This exchange went back for a few days. And, of course, it, it ended very amicably because uh, my buddy and I are, are we've been really good friends for 20 years. But, again, this is an area where he and I are divergent, our opinions about the Second Amendment and about, really, the intent of the Founding Fathers. So I was really compelled uh, even j- just with that exchange that he and I had um, to do an episode on AR-15s, assault weapons, mass shootings, and and our founders' intent and, and where this right comes from and what it means, um, what's the background, what are the implications. I really wanted to talk about this. And, of course, when Lewis and Maine happened, it just kind of accelerated my my motivation to do this. So what I'm going to do today, I want to talk and I'm going to, I'm going to start kind of at the end. I'm going to start from today, so to speak, and go back in time. I want to cover these things about uh, what, what my friend and I talked about over the emails, because these are the things that really motivated me and why it motivated me is this, because my buddy, his first name is Doug. Doug and I, I said, are very, very good friends. I consider Doug a very, very clear thinker. But what I realized, and, and I really, this really came to um, the, the forefront in my mind through these emails, when at one point he goes, well, that's true, that makes sense. I talked about where these rights come from and, and the intent of the Founding Fathers, not if you agree with them or not. That's a whole different discussion. We can all have our opinions. But it, it occurred to me that a lot of people don't, realize what the true intent we we hear with all the time what's the intent of the second what's the intent of the bill of rights what's the intent of this where's it come from 
people don't realize what the founding fathers intended for us and why they intended it for us. And when I realized that, I said, man, I need to talk about this. I really need to talk about this. And so here we are today. So the first thing I, I want to hit on, though, is, is the term mass shooting. What, what, what is a mass shooting? What are mass shootings? What's the definition of a mass shooting? Well, take your choice. There are a lot of definitions. There's the FBI. There's different statistical organizations. There's different law enforcement agencies. There's FBI. There's media outlets. A lot of different entities have variations of what a mass shooting is. But generally, I think the FBI says it's four more killed in a single event. Um, and there's there's mass shootings. There's mass killings. I think mass killings is three or more dead at a, at a specific event and so forth and so on. The point is, is it does vary a, a little bit. But when we think about mass shootings, when we hear it just, oh, there's been a mass shooting, of course, what do we think about? We, we think about school shootings. We think about people walking into businesses and mowing down former or current coworkers, things like this. But the true definition of a mass shooting is three or four more. I think four more is the, is the pretty comfortable number to deal with. So that's a mass shooting. Now, the kinds of shootings that come to mind when you first hear a breaking news uh, headline, things like this, we're talking about the ones that happened like in Lewis and um, in Maine, where you have 10 or 15 or more people killed. But here's the reality. Those, those size of mass shootings are extremely rare. And here I'm going to go into uh, a few numbers here for you. Well, we'll get into it in a minute, but they are very, very rare. The vast, vast majority of mass shootings are these three and four people. We're, we're talking about, in fact, I will pull this up here. Location of mass shootings, 65% of mass shootings or mass killings with guns occur where? In homes. 65% of all mass shootings occur in homes. Now, this is from the Washington Post staff, and this is October 30th of this year. So when we think of, of the number of people who die just in, in residence, almost always by somebody, at the hands of somebody they know, by somebody they know, it's very impactful because it starts to reduce the number of these, these I won't say sens sensationalized, because they do deserve media coverage. They deserve a lot of media coverage, like the instances that just happened in, 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 in Maine. But the, the, the very, very well-known shootings are very, very rare. They are extremely rare. And <clears throat> the reason this is so important is it's because What's the end goal here for all of us, ladies and gentlemen? The end goal is, is to live in a society where we have as little crime as possible, as few innocent deaths as possible. So if we eliminate all mass shootings, all mass shootings, except for those shootings that involved an assault rifle, an assault weapon, we would end almost all gun deaths in this country. 
it's an emotional thing that it's an emotional place that people come from. We're talking about assault rifles because the truth is assault rifles are not the major. They're not the predominant cause of gun deaths. Of course, the cause is people pulling the trigger, not the guns themselves. I want to be clear on that. But they're not the primary weapon used in almost all of gun deaths. Now, again, the 65% of mass shootings, that's just mass shootings. Then you talk about the individual, the the one-on-one or the one-person shot or two people shot at the parties, at the nightclubs, in the homes, in the drive-bys, you name it. You eliminated almost all deaths by assault rifles. And it shouldn't that not be the goal is to is to put an end to as much loss of innocent life as possible? Shouldn't that be the goal? And not looking at this from an emotional point of view, should that not be the goal? Now, look, I am the father of a young child. I am the husband of a beautiful wife. Does anybody listening to this program think that I want any harm in any form to come to my family or, or any of my extended family or any of my other my friends who I love so dearly? Does anybody think that I'm less caring about the people that are important to me or, or any other innocent person than anybody else in the country? People hate our uh, AR-15s or assault weapons. Does anybody really believe that? It's a ridiculous assumption, of course. Well, I hope it's ridiculous to most of you. So I look at this from a logical point of view. Let, let me tell you about emotion. Let me tell you about what is sensational. And again, r- rightly so, for, for lack of a better word, sensational. But what is newsworthy? In, in the very rare instance where we have a commercial airliner crash, and they are very rare, extremely rare, given the number of flights that occur every day and every month and every year around the world. When you have a commercial airliner go down and you have sometimes hundreds of people die, That is a newsworthy event. I'll tell you why it's a newsworthy event. Number one, it's so extremely rare. It's so rare. Do we get massive media coverage in every drive-by shooting in Chicago or Los Angeles or Washington, D.C. or Atlanta or any other crime-ridden city? No, because it happens every single day. Every single day, someplace in this country, people are dying uh, at the hands of some criminal using a handgun, but it gets virtually no media coverage, certainly no national coverage, because it's just, it, it's too common. So a reason that a jetliner going down is, is newsworthy is because it's rare, number two, because the mass loss of life. But do I still fly? Am I still fine with my, my, my family for flying? Do I discourage anybody from flying? Of course not. These are the emotional things that get in the way of making decisions about life and looking at trying to figure out how to fix a problem instead of just say, oh, my God, this happened. And so I'm not going to engage in that activity ever again or that weapon should be banned because it the person using it killed X number of people today. So I just want to to lay that foundation about these arguments and not looking at really what is causing 
or who is responsible or what weapons are responsible for the vast majority of life in this country, the loss of life, life in this country. And it's not assault weapons. It is not assault weapons, period. It's a tiny, tiny fraction. So what did I make that clear there? Now, let me get into what, what my buddy Doug and I were talking about. And one of the things was, he said, well, I'm, you know, I, I'm editorializing what his voice sounded like because it was only an email. <laughs> but I do know Doug. <laughs> In the email, he, sent, he said that the founding fathers could not have imagined AR-15s. And that's true, I would think. Maybe somebody did have kind of an imagination. They, in their mind, they invented a semi-automatic rifle. Uh, but generally speaking, that's true. They probably couldn't have imagined AR-15s. Couldn't have imagined a lot of things. But here's a question I asked him. I asked him, I said, well, given the fact that at the time, well, before the Bill of Rights was authored and before the Constitution, we were at war with the most powerful government and military on the planet, the British government, the King of England, King George, had unleashed all of his forces to subdue the colonists. My question was, if the founding fathers could have imagined a gun like the AR-15, or for that matter, a fully automatic 50 caliber machine gun. Are you telling me that they would not have produced it if they had the means to do it? They would not have authorized their citizen army to utilize these weapons to combat the oppressive government they were fighting? Is that what you really believe? Does anyone really believe that? The citizens, the, the residents, the subjects of the English government, the British government that were in, in combat with them, that were fighting for their independence, they were armed with the most efficient, most effective, most devastating weapons they could get their hands on at the time. I'll say it again. They had the most devastating weapons that they could obtain at the time. Fast forward. After the Revolutionary War was won by the colonists, the American government, and really more specifically, the individual colonies that became states, didn't take those guns away from their citizens. They were the most devastating weapons available at the time and nothing in our government nothing in the rhetoric of the founding fathers the politicians elected officials nothing even implied that those guns now that the war is over were to be taken away were to be given to the government were to be destroyed nothing zero nothing indicates that those guns were only to be used to fight the British. They were to be owned by the citizens of our new country. Now, if anybody 
can prove me wrong on that, I would love for you to email me. You can contact me in any, any number of ways in this platform. You have the email there. I would love for someone to tell me why didn't the founding fathers write into whatever? Why didn't the individual states, why didn't they require their citizens to turn their weapons in? Because they wanted their citizens, citizens to have their weapons. That was the intent of the founding fathers, ladies and gentlemen. That was the intent. The other thing that he and I talked about was the God-given right phrase. And what God, or, you know, what, what God-given right? God wants you to own AR-15s or any other weapon and so forth and so on. And again, it occurred to me that here's somebody that I love, respect, dear friends, and I, I'm sure Doug's listening to this one or will listen to this podcast. But I think, well, again, we can disagree with the reasoning of the founding fathers as, as free thinkers, as citizens of the United States of America, but we can't question what they wrote. We can't question what they memorialized. We can say, well, they were wrong. I don't agree with their reasoning, but their reasoning is documented for all of us to see. And their reasoning is unique in world history. And I'm going to get into some of this in a, in a second. I'm going to come back to a little bit about the about shooting specifically. <clears throat> but it's one thing we talked about. I'm going to get into that. That's going to be the, 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 the end of this. I'm going backwards. Starting from now, I want to go back. The question is, how do we get to where we are now? What was the intent of the founding fathers? And I'm going to talk about that. But going back to a few stats on here with weapons, it's so important, ladies and gentlemen, it's so important for us. <clears throat> pardon me. Let me get a little bit of water here. I got a little cold, too. I'm trying not to sniffle. Sorry. Kids got a cold. I think Anthony and Vince have a cold, but they're 2,000 miles away. I didn't get it from them. But anyway, <clears throat> so I'm going to read a little bit here from an article. You can see it right there. FEE stories. Now, this, this article, this opinion piece <clears throat> is actually about four years old. It's from 2019. <clears throat> but I picked this one because it does such a good job about specifically the AR-15. And so I just want to read some things I'll highlight here from you. Not the whole article. Took out some highlights here. Many people simply cannot believe that regular citizens should be able to legally own so-called weapons of war, quote unquote, which they believe should only be in the hands of the military. According to Pew Research, for example, 81% of Democrats and even 50% of Republicans believe the federal government should ban assault-style rifles like the AR-15. Given the massive amount of carnage AR-15s and similar rifles have caused, it makes sense that the civilian population simply cannot be trusted to own such weapons, right? Perhaps, but is it really true that the AR-15, a popular firearm owned by millions of Americans, is a unique threat to public safety, so dangerous that it deserves to be banned or even confiscated by the federal government. It cannot be emphasized enough that any homicide is a tragedy 
But in order to get a sense of how dangerous to public safety assault-style rifles are, it is useful to compare their usage in homicide to other methods. To other methods. Now, again, I talked about this earlier about <clears throat> how rare compared to overall homicides in this country and even a smaller subset, gun-related homicides, the use of AR-15s is, how rare it is. And it talks about uh, the the methodology of, of how they went with this. And I won't, I won't uh, spend time talking about that, but let me skip down here. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the FBI data is better suited for understanding the circumstances surrounding homicide incidents. <clears throat> this is especially true given that the FBI, but not the CDC, records the type of firearm used in a given homicide. For the purposes of this analysis, the data from the FBI will be used. There are two further limitations to FBI uh, data worth knowing. Firstly, the FBI reports do not look at assault-style rifles specifically, but rather murders involving all types of rifles. Bing, 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 bing. They're looking at all types of rifles. Whether they are committed with an AR-15 or a hunting rifle. So again, this, what you're going to hear here, it includes all rifles. All types of rifles. And then you look at the total number of people killed in this country by rifles every year. Compare that to the total number of people killed with the use of firearms. My goodness, it's tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. How many murders involve rifles like the AR-15? If we take the time to look at the raw data provided by the FBI, we find that all rifles, not just assault-style rifles, constitute an average of 340 per year from 2007 through 2017. Again, this article is from 2018. I'm sorry, 1919. When we adjust these numbers to take Underreporting into account, that number rises to an average of 439 homicides a year. 439. Figure two, there's a figure I won't put up here, but there's a graph. Figure two compares rifle homicides to homicides with other non-firearm weapons. Believe it or not, between 2007 and 2017, nearly 1,700 people were murdered with a knife or sharp object per year, that's almost four times the number of people murdered by an assailant with any sort of rifle. I know you can hit rewind here, but I even read this three times because I was surprised. And I'm coming from a point of view that, that the assault rifles, I mean, already I had that mindset that these are very, very rarely used in the overall number of murders. But listen, believe it or not, between 2007 and 2017, nearly 1,700 people were murdered with a knife or sharp object per year. That's almost four times the number of people murdered by an assailant with any sort of rifle. Now, again, this is going back seven years, uh, this time, this, this study period. So I'm not sure what they are today, but even we're double that. Can you imagine 
the four, four times as many people die with the use of a sharp object than all rifles combined, not just AR-15s, but all rifles, including hunting rifles, which people say, well, there's, they're just, there's meant for hunting. We should only have rifles. Okay, fine. So assault rifles, hunting rifles, every type of rifle adds up to only 25% of the number die at, uh, compared to sharp objects. See, I'm sniffling here. Given that the FBI statistics pertain to all rifles, the homicide frequency of assault-style rifles like the AR-15 is necessarily lesser still, such as such firearms compose a fraction of all the rifles used in crime. According to New York studies, uh, I'm sorry, New York Times analysis, since 2007, at least 173 people have been killed in mass shootings in the United States uh, involving AR-15s. That's 173 over a span of a decade with an average of 17 homicides per year. To put this in perspective, consider that that uh, at this rate, it would take almost 100 years of mass shootings with AR-15s to produce the same number of homicide victims that knives and sharp objects produce in one year. Not my numbers, folks. It's well-researched. And, and, and I feel compelled here to, to, again, state the obvious. I don't want... I don't want to ever find anyone I love or anybody for that matter to die at the hands of a criminal with a knife, a car, a fire bar, a bomb, an assault rifle, again, whatever that means, a, a, a hunting rifle. I hate, I hate criminal behavior. I hate these monsters, these evil murdering monsters that commit these crimes <clears throat> my point and focus here today is to take the focus off something that's not responsible for the vast majority of these deaths or it's not a tool in the process of killing killing these people I want to make that clear the responsible entity is always the person pulling the trigger it's never the weapon I want to make that clear. So, as I said, I wanted to start from the end, where we are now. Now I want to talk briefly about what the intent was, where the Founding Fathers derived their philosophy about our rights, including the right to protect yourself, to protect your family, and why they didn't confiscate guns after the Revolutionary War. So let me go back here, and this is from the National Center for Constitutional Studies. This is January 11, 2018, and it's titled, The Law of Nature and of Nature's God. And before anybody runs away or says, oh, I don't believe in God or whatever, you don't have to. Purpose of this, what I'm going to read to you, is to explain again, to explain the reasoning of the founding fathers and the intent of the founding fathers. 
It's argued all the time. What's the intent of the Second Amendment? Well, this should help all of us understand what the intent, not only the Second Amendment is, was on the part of the Founding Fathers, but all the Bill of Rights. What was the intent of the Founding Fathers, including the Second Amendment? So let me jump right into this. Natural law, the basis of proper government, America's founders knew that only the only reliable basis on which to found a government was on a foundation that never changes. They called it the laws of nature and of nature's God. Man, this is so, so powerful to me. We live in a world today, and I'm talking just very recently, this, is, this has come to fruition, the last what, five or 10, maybe 15 years, we see so much change in gover governance. We see so much change in people's opinions about what's right and wrong. People are accepting behavior today that five years ago, that same person would have called a porn, and we all know it. We see it every day. People are like flags in a heavy wind. They're simply going along with the flow because they don't have the, back the, the backbone. They don't have the foundation to stand their ground on what they believe. That's why the founding fathers put this in here. This is why they they turn to something outside of themselves because they know that mankind is weak and we have to hold ourselves accountable. That's why they put in there for unchanging fundamentals. What is natural law? First of all, Cicero defines natural law as true law. Now, by the way, what's this called? Your Leo Nation, law enforcement. This is so important, ladies and gentlemen, because everything that we stand on in this country, our, our law enforcement, our elected officials, our general government, our local governments, our federal government, everything is based on the rule of law or is supposed to be. That's why when I talk about these, these big issues, they do go right back to law enforcement because we have to have an unshakable foundation from which to operate. We have to have, we have to have a common perspective from which to start every single day, every officer, every tour of duty. This is why they take an oath. It's a foundation. And the ultimate foundation for our government comes from our founding fathers and comes from these words right here. First of all, Cicero defines natural law as true law. Then he says, by the way, Cicero, <clears throat> an amazing Roman philosopher. If you don't know about Cicero, I'm not a historian, but I know enough about him to know that he was an amazing guy. He actually was executed because of his beliefs and because of his stand against anarchy. Take a look at C Cicero. Without Cicero, we wouldn't be here as the United States. True law is right reason and agreement with nature. It is of universal application, unchanging, everlasting. It summons to duty by its commands, and averts from wrongdoing by its prohibitions. It is a sin to try to alter this law, nor is it allowable to repeal any part of it, and it is impossible to abolish it entirely. In short, he's saying that nature's law is eternal, 
We cannot be freed from its obligations by Senate or people. The government, your fellow citizen, cannot take your rights away from you. They are God-given. That's what I meant when I said it before in a previous podcast, and to my friend, everybody listening, that our founding fathers, they read Cicero. They derived their philosophy from Cicero and others that these rights cannot be taken away from you, period. Where was I? We cannot be freed from its obligations by senator people, and we need not look outside ourselves for an expounder or interpreter of it. And there will not be different laws at Rome and Athens. In other words, everybody is subject to the same law in God's eyes, in Cicero's view, in our founding father's view. These laws are absolutely universal. Or different laws now and in the future. But one eternal and unchanging law will be valid for all nations in all times, and there will be one master and ruler, that is God, over us all. For he is the author of this law, its promulgator, its enforcing judge. Ladies and gentlemen, you can be an agnostic, you can be an atheist, you can be Saint, you can be, doesn't matter. You can be the, the most adherent religious person in the world. The point I'm trying to make is there was a process, there was a reasoning to what the founding fathers put down on paper. It doesn't matter if you personally believe in God or not. We all have to stand, understand what the reasoning of our founding fathers was. And by the way, the humility of our founding fathers, so I'll talk about right as we wrap things up. Natural law was central to American thought even before the revolution. For example, here's what Massachusetts Patriot James Otis wrote in, in 1764 to oppose an unjust revenue act passed by the British Parliament. Should an act of parliament, parliament be against any of his natural laws, which are immutably true, their declaration would be contrary to eternal truth, equity, and justice, and consequently void. When the U.S. Constitution was completed, its framers looked upon it as an expression of this higher law. According to Madison, it was a product of the transcendent, uh, transcendent law of nature. Alexander Hamilton called it a fundamental law and concluded that no legislative act contrary to the Constitution can be valid. Ladies and gentlemen, they wrote the Declaration of Independence with a philosophical roadmap for our freedoms. They codified that roadmap in the Constitution, and they said that those things codified in the Constitution cannot be screwed with. The Constitution is not a living, breathing document, period. That codification is based on their belief, their philosophy, that our rights come from, you call it whatever you want to, a higher being, but something outside of ourselves. And those rights, one of those rights includes the ability and the responsibility, from my point of view, to protect ourselves and our families without doing unjust harm to anybody else. Who taught the founders about this? I talked about Cicero. Where did the founders learn about natural law? 
in their historical and political studies, it was a familiar thread that ran through the Greek and Roman philosophers, such as Aristotle, uh, Demosthenes, Seneca, and especially Cicero. <clears throat> I just tell you that, again, to let you know there was a process to emphasize the founding fathers believed in something bigger than themselves. And I said I would touch on that. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the founding fathers knew that they as individuals and collectively were fallible. They knew that every human being is fallible. They know that every human being can be tempted and can and will not always live up to their own standards. They not only believed in God-given rights, they placed themselves in a position not to be able to take rights from you. Their compatriots. They said, we can't take your rights from you. We can't give you your rights, including the right to self-defense, including the right that they wrote down. Think about this. For those who think that we shouldn't be able to own guns at all, they put in the Second Amendment, and yes, the Second Amendment has been ruled on many times by the Supreme Court, a court with which I don't always agree, but on this particular issue, they have ruled that individuals have the right to bear arms, to own and bear arms, period. They put in the Bill of Rights, they codified in the Bill of Rights what they believe are God-given rights. And one of those is the right to self-defense. If they didn't believe that, why? Why would they put that in there next to the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment? These are some of my favorites. They're all my favorites, but these are some are highlighted in my mind. Why would they do that? Why wouldn't they at the very least just leave it out, not even discuss gun ownership? Why would they even go down that road? Because they were firm believers that even the most well-intentioned people can become tyrants. And sometimes we as individuals must defend ourselves. And they wanted to make sure that the government that they created knew that its citizenry could defend itself against it. That is humility. That is deference to individual rights, ladies and gentlemen, when people who are creating a government set up a counterbalance in the form of individual ability to defend itself against that government. So I'm covering two things here. The assault on assault weapons and our God, yes, God-given rights to protect, to defend ourselves and our families and our communities. So I hope that this struck a chord with people. I hope this struck a chord with, with you listening to me, you looking at me right now on this camera. If it struck a chord, if it makes any sense, share this episode. Have people start following Ladies and gentlemen, we have to know 
what law enforcement means, what laws we are enforcing, what Leo Nation means. We are a nation of laws, not of men, and the men who created this country intended that it be that way. So God bless you all. Hey, can drop some money into our nonprofit. It has nothing to do with the show. It's our nonprofit, The Leo Project. You can find it at leoproject.org. Help us to help some fallen officers, the families of fallen officers, injured officers. We'll be doing what we can. We'd really appreciate that. Follow us on all the platforms, Instagram and Rumble and YouTube. Subscribe. Get the word out. I'm doing this because I love this country, because I love law enforcement. Most of you listening feel the same way. If you believe that, you feel the same way, then help me to help everybody out there and share and uh, spread the word. God bless you all. We'll see you next time. And uh, here you can hear me next time. And uh, stay safe. Take care of your families. Bye-bye.